Welcome to Finding Home. I'm Scott Harris, your host. Here, we start with a simple question. What does home mean to you? For 20 years, I've been immersed in the residential properties that speak to buyers and sellers in New York City. And I've discovered that home is much more than brick and mortar. Home really means discovering your true calling. I speak with passionate entrepreneurs, creators, and leaders about what drives and inspires them to follow their dreams and makes the world a better place. Welcome back to Finding Home. Hope you've had a wonderful week. It's hard to think back to a time in America before celebrity chefs, before farm to table became part of the vernacular, but it was not that long ago. In this episode... I get to talk to Erica Gruen, who helped bring the Food Network from near near death to much of what we know it to be today. Erica is an Emmy Award-winning TV producer, an executive. She's been a digital pioneer, masterminding one of television's biggest brands as the president and CEO of the Food Network. We talk about her incredibly interesting and somewhat accidental path from producing concerts on campus in Wisconsin as a student, to launching one of Madison Avenue's first digital agencies, to her successful foray into cable TV. She's been a technical advisor to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a mentor to students at NYU where she teaches. She's been a mentor agricultural tech programs, a really cool food accelerator that I know called FoodX. I actually know the founder of that as well. And an advisor to an investor in many other technology ventures. She's also senior advisor to Oakland's De Silva and Phillips, which is a mid-market M&A firm. And in addition, which I think is amazing, she's a trustee of the James Beard Foundation, which is, as you might know, the yearly culinary Oscars. And we get to talk a little bit about a chef that I met in New Orleans as a high schooler, the world-famous Emeril Lagasse. And without further ado, I want to bring you this really fun conversation with me and Erica Gruen. Well, I want to welcome Erica Gruen to the podcast. Erica, how are you doing today? Great. Great. Yeah, thanks, is for, thanks for being here. It's uh, it's exciting to see you and uh, to get to chat about you and, and how you came to be running what was the most exciting uh, food network. You know, really, the, the it's an exciting thing, but there's a lot to get to there. And uh, I want to talk about a lot of what Finding Home is about is how people found by accident or on purpose what really drove them, their passion. And I think it's, it's really, it's fun to hear people's stories. So here we are. I'd, I'd like to, to start at the beginning and just ask, you know, where did you grow up? <laughs> I grew up in a small town in Illinois, not too far from Chicago called Downers Grove. Everybody says, that sounds very familiar. And I go, yeah, you're thinking of Grover's Corners and Thornton, the Thornton Wilder play. Uh, but it, it and and my husband who grew up in Brooklyn likes to say that I grew up in Weekly Readerville, uh, you know, kind of Dick and Janeville, and it was very much like that in the fifties and sixties. 
um, real, you know, real small town America. Um, why were we, why, why did I grow up there? One wants to know, nice Jewish girl in Downers Grove, Illinois. Um, the reason was, and I, I do need to write a book about this sometime. Uh, my father worked at a national laboratory, not too far from Downers called Argonne National Laboratory. There are five national laboratories in the United States. And the most famous one is Los Alamos. Yes. Um, yes. In New Mexico. Yes. Famous for having manufactured the atom bomb. Um, the, so Argonne is one and there's another one in, um, in Tennessee, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where my father worked as a, as a graduate student building the, uh, building the components of the atom bomb, separating uranium 235. Uh, after the war, uh, he started working at Argonne and, um, moved our family out there to this godforsaken <sighs> spot in the, in the prairie. And the other, Jews who lived in Downers Grove were all scientists at Argonne National Lab. Like, so, uh, and then when he retired uh, nine years ago at the age of 90, <laughs> he was actually the law. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. True. Yes. And still, and still working today on his own, on his own uh, research and discoveries. But he was the longest serving, we believe, the longest serving employee of the National Laboratory System, uh, having at that point worked there for... 65 years. Unbelievable. Like that. But anyway, that's, that's where I grew up. Yeah. And um, me and my sister and brother, are the only Jewish kids in Hillcrest Elementary School. I was one of two Jewish kids graduating in my high school of 365. And um, it was, it was a, it, you know, it was, uh, but I do have to say, I, I do credit a lot of my success in the entertainment business to the fact that I grew up that way in a, in a small town in the middle of the United States. And I tell my students at NYU uh, that it would be, it, it's very good to be born someplace in, you know, where, you know, where the, where, where life is kind of the iconic American life. Um, and you develop a feel for what people think is funny and what people think is entertaining and what, you know, uh, what people are like outside of New York and LA. Right. Regular, regular folks. And so that was, I mean, I know you grew up in a, outside of the big cities as well. Yeah. It's small, a small place, a concentration of, uh, of culture, but a small, you know, New Orleans is a, is a pretty small town relative to New York or LA or any, you know, Chicago. Um, what was, what was it like growing up with a, with a scientist as a father? Well, you know, my mother was also a scientist, really. Um, she was a, a social scientist, a, a, uh, developmental psychologist, PhD in the university of Chicago, not that common, uh, not that common in the late forties for women to get PhDs. Her, her mentor at the university of Chicago was Carl Rogers, the famous humanist psychologist. So my mother, um, you know, they're both very educated, highly cultured academics and, um, you know, and thinkers and all their friends were the same. And so it was kind of a hothouse of intellectualism, you know, my parents' cocktail parties and whatever. It was all physicists, uh, you know, engineers, chemists. I, and, and, and in fact, it wasn't until I was in college that I realized that Jewish fathers were something other than scientists. I, I mean, I, I never met any um, or very few. Right. No, 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 doc, no doctors, no, no lawyers, just PhDs. Yeah. Quite a different 
a different uh, grouping of jobs. Yeah. A moment in time. You know, of course, my dad is really the only one of his co of that cohort. I th- he has he has one he has one couple one friend um, still left, of course. So it's it's you know they've they've all passed on, including my mom. And so it was a moment in time that couldn't I don't it couldn't be replicated today. I don't think. And um, very much the post-war era. You know, um, a lot of work that was being done at Argonne was in nuclear energy, actually. Not bombs, but nuclear energy, um, especially during the Carter administration. And um, so, yeah, it was it was it was a funny way to grow up. Um, it really it really was. I mean, I was this balance of this very intellectual home and a very anti-intellectual social environment. You know, my parents were the only. I mean, my parents and Cindy Ray's parents, who were Catholic, were the only parents in my grade that were voting for Kennedy. For example, you know, it was like. DuPage County was Republican since the time of Lincoln, you know, and only recently, by the way, elected a Democratic congressman, like only in the last four years. So, you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was different. It was different. It, you know, for, for, for years, I really, I think it was kind of, it was very confusing in, in many ways as a child, you know, not to have a Christmas tree and whatever. And, but, um, did it give you did it give you confidence to kind of have your own opinion? I mean, did you think about it that way as a kid like okay, my you know you, you knew all these other people were a certain way. Um, I'm not sure. And you you Yeah, I mean, and and maybe maybe in a way. You know, my father is a Hitler refugee uh in addition and that colored my growing up years very much. Um you know, he was a self-made man. Um my mother also uh, only one in her family to go to college. Uh, her mother was illiterate, actually, from a little tiny town not far from uh, Kiev, uh, from a shtetl. Her mother was from a shtetl. Her father was from Odessa. My mother was a self-made woman. And I think the confidence that I maybe I grew up with was, you know, my parents were very, very intensely focused on academic and career success. Um, not money. Neither one of them cared at all about money, actually. That was not the marker of success. The marker of success was intellectual achievement. And um, and they were very, very interested in all me and my siblings, um, you know, accomplishments and our achievements. And we all got piano lessons and we all got art lessons and, you know, uh, we all got Jewish summer camp. And, you know, that was a big focus in my family was, you know, you're going to go on and achieve something. And also, I guess for a girl, even in those, you know, I guess because my mother was a working woman, one of the few working mothers that I knew growing up, um, never, there never was an issue like, oh, you're a girl, you're just going to go to college and get married. In fact, I'm the only one in my family that doesn't have doctor in front of their name. So I'm the black sheep. Um, that makes me the black <laughs> sheep. And, and so you're taking, you're taking music lessons did people expect the music to turn into anything vocational or was it strictly, okay, you're going to have music as a background and that's going to, you know, provide some fun entertainment when, you know, uh, instead of a TV uh, as, as that came into existence. And then what were you planning to do? I mean, my piano uh, teacher, who was a very, very fine teacher at Northwestern university uh, and a very fine pianist, she really did want me to, you know, go to Interlochen for summer, uh, music training, and I think she thought I could be a musician. It, I, you know, alas, I am such an undisciplined 
and lazy person, I could just never, you know, you have to put your butt on the piano bench for hours at a time to get to that level. <laughs> and, um, and to this day, my favorite thing to do at the piano is read through music. I really do not like to practice. So no, I never thought of myself as a professional, as being a professional musician. And actually, um, because of that, I thought, well, there's no way for me to have a career in music or theater or the other things that I love to do, especially in high school. It never occurred to me that there was any other professional route other than being on the stage. I, I, you know, had no one to tell me, oh, you know, people can, you know, producers or their directors or their stagehands or their set designers or, you know, there's all these other, of course, professions that we know that surround the arts, but I'd had no knowledge of those professions. So when, when did it, when did that take on more dimension for you? When did it go from being, you know, on stage to maybe this inkling that it could be well, behind the stage? Well, you know, it was much later. I, I was on a career path like my mom to be a psychologist. I was at the University of Wisconsin in graduate school to studying uh, psychology. And um, I fell in with a group of friends folk, folk, who played folk music like me, you know, like as a, you know, for fun. And we would get together and play I play a few different instruments, guitar, banjo, what have you. And, uh, and one day one of the, one of the, one of my friends said, Hey, it would be really fun if we produced a concert, not of ourselves, but we, you know, bring in somebody that we really, you know, some musician that we really want to hear and put them on in concert. And I was like, what, how do you do that? And he said, Oh, well, I know how to do that because he was in law school. He said, I, I did that here as a student, as an undergraduate student, and I know how to do it. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, one thing led to another. We we actually did call somebody up and we offered her, I think it was $300 to come to Madison and, and play a concert. We went to the university and we rented out the hall in the student union. I don't know. We put up posters and we somehow sold tickets. And what happened was that ticket, that, that concert sold out. And I remember running around the union on the night of the concert with a magic marker writing sold out on all the posters. It was yeah, it was just like mind blowing, and that was it. That was like this is the most fun I've ever had in my life. Um, so two years later, we're producing concerts every month. We put together, uh, you know, five hundred one three C. I'm uh, writing and editing a monthly newsletter. I'm working, you know, in order to support my concert promotion habit. Um, and then finally, I actually got a full-time job at the University of Tennessee as a concert promoter. When I thought I was supposed to be, I mean, I was finishing my master's degree and I was supposed to go on for my PhD at another university. And I, and I said, I'm going to go take this job in Knoxville, Tennessee. I know nobody there. I'm going to move everything there. I'm going to put my admittance to the PhD program on hold. And that was the end of that. Uh, never went back, of course, to do that. This was like student activities or something where you're working at the University of Tennessee and like within the job at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, student activities. I ran their classical music and dance program. I ran the art exhibit program. I ran a dinner theater program. My buddy in student activities who was running rock and jazz produced one of the last Elvis Presley concerts ever uh, at UT. Um, we had a blast, you know, um, and, and you're bringing you're bringing in talent from all over the, the world, right? These are talent. You're talent. Yeah, you're a talent exactly. buyer. I was a booker, 
And I was, you know, and, and we did. And the university, the chancellor at the time was a massive classical music fan. So the, the university heavily subsidized basically our a very, very top flight chamber music series. We had the Guarneri String Quartet, the Juilliard String Quartet. The first concert I promoted there was Alicia De La Rocha. If you know, you know music, she was at the top of the pantheon of pianists. Um, and, uh, you know, Jean-Pierre Rampal, you know, flutist. And it was an excellent, excellent series. Uh, PDQ Bach. And then we brought in authors. Robert Lowell came. James Baldwin came. And my job was, you know, to coach the students on how to, how to produce these concerts, but then also, you know, picking up these, you know, world-class artists at the, at the airport and taking them to dinner and ferrying them around, Knoxville and what have you. And um, it was, you know... Amazing. And uh, the way I got that job was is also kind of part of the story because I, even even while I was producing concerts in Madison, I still didn't know that people actually did that for a living. I thought, oh, I'm doing this. For, I mean, I wasn't. It was a nonprofit. I wasn't. Yeah. It was for fun. And then another friend of mine said, Erica, you know, people do this for a living. And there's actually an organization based here in Madison called the Association of College University and uh, Community Arts Administrators. And you should go talk to them. And sure enough, they had a job posting service. And they said, well, you know, if you're going to work for university, you're going to have to have a master's degree. And I said, well, I have a master's degree, but it's not in concert promotion or anything. It's, you know, in educational psychology. And they said, that's fine. That's fine. You know, it just has to be a master's <laughs> You just needed you just needed yeah, you just the, 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 the master's, the M. So, um, you know, without the University of Wisconsin and the opportunities I had there and then running into this organization, I still would, I still would be, you know, sitting in a, in a darkened room listening to people's life histories while I took notes as a psychologist. There's just no question about it. I mean, there was no such career planning or career, you know, plotting out a career. I had absolutely no idea how to do that. And I, I'm just, you know, incredibly lucky that these people, you know, that I stumbled across these resources. Um, and what was the, what was the, there's a jump, right? There's a, you know, how long were you in, in Knoxville? I mean, when did it, how did you get from Knoxville to New York? Like what happened in between those two very different places? So I'm, I'm working in Knoxville. One summer I go to visit my friend in Colorado, uh, you know, for vacation. My, my very good friend from graduate student days is living now in Boulder. And, and we're, we're driving through Aspen, Colorado. And uh, my dad used to ski in Aspen, and I was, I, I, anyway, we were driving through Aspen and um, in the summer, it was an absolutely gorgeous place. And I said to my friend Judy, I said, you know, my dream job would be to work for the Aspen Music Festival. Wow, what an incredible job that would be. Okay, so I get back to Knoxville, and sure enough, the first chamber music group that we're, that we're bringing into campus that fall is the Aspen Brass Quintet. And this is <laughs> this is a group of guys who um, you know they 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 gig around as a as a brass quintet, but during the summer they all teach at the music festival. And one of them was actually an administrator um, at the festival. And I went up to him after the concert and I said, you know, my dream job is to work for the Aspen Music Festival. How could I possibly ever get that job? And he goes, Oh well, we do hire people for the summer. You should come and interview with the head of marketing. And I did, and she offered me a summer job. And I took it and I left my job at the University of Tennessee and drove in my little, you know, Dotson hatchback 
I put all my stuff in storage, drove my little Dawson hatchback out to Aspen, having absolutely no idea what I was going to do in the fall. I didn't know. I just was like a summer job. No net. No net. So this is actually a good point in the story because four weeks later, the woman who had hired me turned 30. And she and she announced to everybody she's quitting her job. When the festival is over at the end of August, she's not going back to New York because the, the winter office was in New York at the time. She's not going back to New York. I'm sitting there as her summer assistant. The, you know, the, head, of, the head of the festival comes to me and says, hey, would you like her job? <laughs> like your arms slowly <laughs> going up. Raising, you're like, you're just waiting for someone to, you don't, you're not even waiting for to be asked. You're like, um, well, I'm here. Yeah, kind of, except yeah. that, you know, you would think that I would have done that. But actually what I said was, this is insane, but I actually said, you know, I didn't say this to them, but I, that was the last thing I ever wanted to do was move to New York. I thought people who lived in New York was idiots. Yeah. Why live in such an, <laughs> and so I said to them, I'm going to think about it. And they said, well, okay, you think about it. <laughs> okay. You know, there's a three-week break after the festival before we get the New York office open again. You just let us know, you know, three weeks from now. So I said, okay. So I went to Minneapolis and stayed with some friends there, tried to find, desperately trying to find a job somewhere else. So I didn't have to go to New York. But at the end of the day, ah. I realized, yeah, you know, I couldn't find anything. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to take this job. Um, you know, and I, and, and I will actually be able to work for the Espen Music Festival. I'm going to come back in the summer and then I'm going to, you know, I'll do it for a year and then I'll, you know, kind of figure out what I'm going to do from there. Um, and that is what I did until the third summer I was there when I, this is the part of the story you're probably waiting for me to get to, um, when I, um, met these guys (laughs) who were starting a cable television network, um, for the arts, uh, and they were going to call it Bravo. They did call it Bravo because it was for the arts. And they offered me right, right. a job. Now, you know, keeping in mind that at that point in 1980, cable penetration in the United States was about 12 or 15%. It was, you know, nobody knew what it was. I didn't know what it was. My father didn't know what it was. He thought I was an idiot for quitting. You know, finally, I'm making some headway in my career. I'm finally working for... You know, the Aspen Music Festival, I finally got to New York City, you know, and like he and my mother, I'm sure, like like wiping the sweat off their brow. Thank God, you know, she's going to actually be able to work and do something. Um, and I said, no, I'm going to quit this job and I'm going to go work for this <laughs> cable television startup. Startup. Yeah. What the hell is cable wow. television, I think, is what my father said. Um, and I said, that's a good question. I don't know. I went to the library to try to figure it out. There were no articles about cable television. Um, this was the same month that Ted Turner launched CNN. I mean, it was, you know, the 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 very beginning, beginning. lucky me, right? This is, this is the theme of my life. Lucky me. So, um, yeah, I was actually, you know, I was hired by Chuck Dolan, who's one of the fathers of the entire cable television business. I get to work for Cablevision. It was actually a consortium of Cablevision. It's unbelievable. Cablevision, Comcast, Cox and Daniels, the top companies in the business, pooled their money to launch Bravo and another service that became the Playboy Channel eventually. And, um, and you know, and I'm in charge of okay. marketing and I'm in charge of rolling it out, running around the country, talking to cable operators, uh, you know, selling stories to Newsweek, meeting Leonard Bernstein, going to Carnegie Hall, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, wait, 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 blah, blah, blah. What is, what is, well, I mean, it was, it was, you know, now that I know a lot more about startups and I teach entrepreneurship and everything, you know, you know, now with hindsight, you know, it was, it was a total ungodly, holy mess. I mean, it was, it was, it was, you know, chaos, total chaos. Nobody knew what anybody was doing. Um, you know, there were so many mistakes made in terms of the, the, the original business plan and the, and the, and the entire business structure, the financial structure of how this was all supposed to work. And, and sure enough, you know, like two years later I was laid off because, you know, it was just a bad, it was a bad business idea for so many reasons. Eventually, you know, Bravo limped along, went through several incarnations, eventually purchased by NBC and now is, you know, obviously a completely different channel than it was then but, um, you know, a channel for the arts, there were several that were launched. In fact, at that time, CBS launched a, a, a channel. Um, ABC launched a channel. Um, I won't go into the strategic reasons why they did that. It had nothing to do with being arts patrons. But um, it was, it was a, you know, it was the Wild West time of the business. Um, people like me had an, had an opportunity to get into the business because nobody who had a real career in television was going to throw their career over to go work in cable, that's for sure. So there were a lot of, you know, people like me who had never worked in television, had no idea, uh, you know, what they were doing and, um, in learning on the job. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was. It was a very intense, uh, not always pleasant working environment. Um, and but I, I do have to say, you know, I learned a tremendous amount, of course, and and survived that to go on to work for a large ad agency as a cable expert, um, and eventually producer. And um, I was, you know, I went from there. Eventually, after I was laid off, I got a job uh, at the iconic Dancer Fitzgerald Sample. Uh, if you listen, if you ever watch Mad Men, you'll hear them talk about Dancer. Mm-hmm. That was Dancer Fitzgerald Sample, one of the big yeah. ad, uh, old ad agencies that was eventually purchased by Saatchi and became Saatchi and Saatchi Advertising. Uh, and that became the world's largest ad agency when I was there. So, you know, again, lucky me, I was I was there during this period of time at Saatchi where, um, you know, I had a lot a, a lot of visibility and in, in the industry, I was, uh, I, every, I, I knew everybody in cable. I eventually launched one of the first digital ad agencies in the world. Um, my clients were Procter and Gamble and General Mills and Toyota. And, um, and I also, you know, got, a, got my foot in the door in advertising with a skill set that not too many other people had, which was two years in cable television makes you an expert in 1982. Um, so, uh, so that's how I got to, yeah, that's Amazing. how I got to Saatchi. You know, my, you know, as I said, you can kind of sum up my entire career as, you know, A, doing an excellent job choosing my parents. I think I did an excellent job on that. And then I did an <laughs> excellent job on picking the era in which I was born, you know, because all of these technological changes in television and digital happened while I was coming up in my career, you know, now, now you, you know, like I used to say, you needed an uncle at ABC to get a job in the television business. Now you need an uncle at Bravo to get a job in the television business. Right. And, you know, um, 
So there were, I guess my point is there were opportunities that I had because of the time I was, the times in which I was born and the family in which I was born. Um, and, and being, being willing to, to go, to move to this terrible yeah. city of New York <laughs> in the, at a time when the 80, when, yeah, when New York, York was wasn't horrible. so great. It was Maybe. horrible. I remember walking down the street and newspapers blowing up against my legs. You know, that was, it was disgusting uh, and dangerous. I, I got a job on, I, I got a, an apartment on the north side of 86th street. That was as far north as my friends would let me go. You know, you could go up to 86th Street, but you couldn't live anywhere north of 86th Street. And I lived on the north side of 86th Street. That was it. Everything above that was so dangerous. And you were get, you were getting mugged otherwise. You were just going to yeah. get mugged. Because now I live on 96th Street. And and so <laughs> <laughs> now, so it, you're in New York. You're working at an ad agency. How does it? How do you go from back into cable? How do you get back into this? new thing, uh, another channel on cable called the Food Network. Well, so my job at at the ad agency, I had several different jobs that I did at the ad agency simultaneously. One of them was, you know, being the cable expert for the agency, telling, you know, Procter and Toyota and General Mills where to spend money on cable. So my job was covering the waterfront. I wrote a book every year for Saatchi on handicapping the cable networks. Um which was an important thing. People really still were trying to figure it out. And, um, and so I, you know, I knew everybody in the business, all the heads of advertising, all the heads of programming. And then I ran another business within Satchi, which was producing television shows for cable, primarily sponsored by Procter and Gamble. Yeah. Ah. Um, so I had a television operation I was running and, um, and I got to know the guys uh, among the, among the people who I became friendly with in this, you know, professional colleagues were a couple of guys at the Tribune Broadcasting Company from Chicago. And um, they became investors along with Providence Journal in the Food Network very early on. So I, um, I knew the, I knew, I knew about the Food Network from its inception while it was still just being talked about and, and, you know, consulted unofficially with the guys who were starting it, including the founding CEO and when um, when he left the network, or when he was dismissed as CEO, base is actually what happened. Um, Tribune and Providence Journal came to me and offered me the job. It was kind of the, sh- the short story there. Uh, running running Food Network because they knew me. Um, I was they knew that I knew a lot about programming. They knew, I obviously knew a lot about advertising and had connections with advertisers. Um. And that's how I got the job as CEO, basically. Um, I was only the second woman ever to be CEO of a television network in the United States. Um, and you were you were tasked with creating, also creating programs. Oh yeah, no, I mean, I was, it was it was well? a standalone network, meaning um, it wasn't part of any other network group. So yeah, I was in charge of everything: programming, advertising, marketing, finance, operations, studio. Uh, HR, you know, all the, of course, on all the administrative functions, everything. It was the Tiger Ball of Wax. Uh, three offices around the United States. I think we opened Detroit, so four offices um, around the United States. And I uh, started uh, international di- distribution, uh, uh, wrote the paperwork for Food Network Canada, um, 
and basically turned the network around because it was it wasn't the food network we know of it today. It was really a lot of instructional cooking shows that nobody watched, uh, nobody advertised on. Um, you know, we could do a whole nother podcast, uh, Scott, just on the history of the Food Network, but it was, suffice it to say, it was almost on the verge of being shut down um, because um, there, was just, there was just not enough money and none of the investors wanted to put in any, in any more money because structurally it had been launched with the idea that it was going to be free to cable operators and there's no other advertising-supported network out there that was ever free to cable operators. That's really, that's really funny. I had never thought of it that way. I mean, sometimes my family jokingly, but I think lovingly, uh, talks about me like I'm always trying to be the super manager uh, of the family. Uh, and yeah, I think, you know, there probably is some of that. I mean, being a CEO, but also just being a producer, going back to concert promotion days, what you learn when you're a producer is... Um, you know, you know, keeping your eye on 17 things at one time and, um, you know, taking care of the talent, taking care of the hall, selling the tickets, you know, uh, managing the flow of the audience, you know, et cetera, you know, looking at the lighting, you know, thinking about sound and, um, you know, and, and doing that all in real time. It's a, it's, you know, I, I just, have been doing that for most of my life. I mean, even when I was, when I was, I mean, going back to when I was 11 and 12 and not just learning how to play the piano, but, you know, being the accompanist for the all girls eighth grade choir, you know, I have always liked being in that spot where I was in the middle of the action, directing the action, um, you know, and getting everybody what they need and putting people in their place and making the show work and, I think that's just always been who I've always been, you know, like you were talking about, you know, coming home. I think the great thing for me about being able to find a career in the entertainment business. And I tell this to my students at NYU, there's just, there's just no more fun place to work than the entertainment business for somebody like me with a restless mind and a, you know, restless, you know, a restless set of interests and always wanting to try something new. Um, you know, there's, there's no better place to be. I'm very fortunate. I think that I was able to find a career path outside of what had been, you know, I thought predetermined for me to be a psychologist, to be an academic, um, I, that I've been able to satisfy so much of my creative urges in this business, um, and still have a, you know, still make money at it. That's amazing to me. That's like a great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the well, it's actually the course the course that I teach is in the business school, but um, it's primarily undergrad. It's all undergraduates, primarily juniors and sophomores, and they're they're not business students. They come from Tisch and 
the drama school and the business and the music school and they're, you know, they're filmmakers and they're actors and they, you know, they're, they're taking my class because they're trying to figure out how they're going to make a career in the business. Um, and uh, what I tell them is, um, you know, they're, it, it's very good for people like, you know, who have peripatetic minds and personalities. It takes all kinds. The business is very friendly to all kinds of people, uh, people who are highly organized, people who are highly disorganized, um, people who are very people-oriented, people who are hermits. I mean, they can all be accommodated in this business. Um, it's you know, If you want to be a neurosurgeon, there's like pretty much one pathway. That's it. You better, you know, that's it. But, you know, in the entertainment business, you can be almost any kind of person and be successful, um, you know, and be happy, not just monetarily successful. You can also be happy in what you're doing. Um, and uh, that's the great thing about it. There is no one. It strikes there is me no like the experience as a, as a CEO, kind of being able, having to manage so many different personalities, competing interests and everything else could be a decent training ground to take good care of a lot of other competing interests personally. And, you know, as you, and it seems like the heart that you have to bring into a merger, like, you know, a personal merger, like what you're talking about could prepare you well to be a leader outside of the house too. That was my conversation with Erica Gruen. Thanks so much, Erica, for being a part of the podcast. We had a lot of fun recording it. Finding Home is produced by Andrea Pollyutes. And if you like what you hear, make sure and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends. If you like what you hear also, go to scottharris.net and check out all the other things that we're up to. You can subscribe to daily emails. You can check out our newsletters. There's a lot of other fun things to learn about New York, and we're sharing them all the time. See you next time.